Hey, everyone. Welcome to Superwoman. Today's guest is the incredible, powerful, and inspiring Rachel Rogers. She is the CEO of Hello7, the owner of the Rogers Ranch, which I am really excited to talk about. And her best-selling book, We Should All Be Millionaires, launched a couple weeks ago. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to hang out with you again. I know. We've been doing this double wham- double headers. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) I love it. So I would love to go back to before Hello 7 and have you share your story of where you were at and then what what gave you the impetus to sort of launch this. And now you're inspiring women to be like, fuck you, I'm going to be a millionaire. And I'd love to hear how how you got there. Yes. I think I should change my tagline to fuck you. I'm going to be a millionaire. (laughs) So good. Um, So I started, you know, I went to college, went to law school because that was always my dream to become a lawyer since I was like eight years old. And law school was very challenging because I was one of the only women. I was one of the only black people in my entire school. Like it was a very small group of diverse people. And it was very like the energy of it was, it's like a, you can, it just feels like a patriarchal institution, you know, in every way, shape and form. And so it was really challenging for me, but I didn't understand. I don't think I had, I studied feminism in college and, you know, I obviously understood racism as well, but like, I don't know. I don't think it was as obvious to me that that was what was happening in every way until later on in my law school year. So it was a pretty much a traumatizing experience. And so I left there thinking, I'm not going to go work at a firm to be further traumatized by this industry. I'm going to start my own law practice. And so that's what I did. Um, My mother was like, so you're not getting a job after all of those loans you've taken out? And I'm like, yeah, we just start my own practice. And she's like, wait, why are we doing this? She was not a fan. But I did it anyway. And I built my law practice over about seven years and just was like a solo attorney for two or three years. Then I started hiring associates and other staff um, and had a pretty successful law practice serving women business owners mainly because that's who trusted me. And that's who came to me as clients. And at a certain point, more and more of them started saying like, well, how is your law practice so successful? You seem to be doing well, making good money. You're hiring full-time employees. How are you doing this? And I would give them all this business strategy and advice for free. Not even... I didn't even know I was good at it. Like I I was doing well, but I had no idea. Like by my own measurements, I was struggling, you know, and still figuring it out. But for most people, they felt like, wow, you're really successful. And so I started just telling them what I was doing. And they started asking more and more for coaching and strategy. And so then I decided to move into business coaching. And I just saw stats around women entrepreneurs. The majority, it's about 80% of women entrepreneurs still today um, never make more than $50,000 in total annual revenue in their businesses. And I was like, hell no. That was like so unacceptable to me. And so I just wanted to solve that. And I felt like most of the training that's out there, it's like, Hey, little woman, make 50K, you know, shoot for a hundred thousand. And I'm like, what am I going to do with that? (laughs) Like, I got kids to feed. You got to pay taxes. You need employees. Like, a hundred thousand dollars is not enough today, um, or even years ago. And so that's why I decided to start Hello Seven to really 
you know, call in women to like, let's be more ambitious and let's shoot for a million. Like stop telling us to do a hundred thousand. That's not enough. Let's shoot for a million at a minimum for, you know, our business and financial goals. So that was, that's, that was how it started. And when I started it, I was like, people are going to think, who knows? I mean, they might love it. They might hate me and think I'm ridiculous or I'm too greedy or whatever. But I was like, screw it. I'm doing it anyway. Were you scared at all when you left the cushion of, you know, high paying legal work? I know, you know, I know we pay our lawyer. So were you nervous at all when you said, okay, it's time to help these women? To put it like, as I'm thinking about it, you're asking women who are not making a lot of money to now pay you too, right? To make more money, which you should be paid for, but I'm sure it doesn't compare with legal fees. Correct, right. Because the law as a business owner, when you're selling legal services, you're selling something that nobody wants, but they need. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a necessity, but we don't enjoy paying lawyers. I don't enjoy paying my lawyers that I currently have today. So, so you know, it was like, I had to, I, and I think that's what made me so good at selling because I really had to educate people on why they needed an attorney, what they needed them for, right? And really work hard to sell my services. And so it made me a good salesperson. But yes, I was scared. And, and because I was afraid and because I had little kids that I had to take care of because I was the breadwinner. So I didn't have the option to just be like, oh, I'm, I don't I no longer feel like it. I'm going to close my law practice and just do this other thing. That'd be cute, but no. <laughs> so I had to actually make sure that I was making money at all times. So it was a slow process. So I just kept selling legal services. Basically, I stopped promoting it, but I'd you know, people just kept coming to me because I had been running my practice at that point for about six years. Um, and so I took whatever money came in the door from legal work, but then I started promoting the business coaching and strategy and just getting those first few clients. And it allowed me to go slow. Like I worked with one client for six months and she had massive success. And I was like, oh, this really works. And so that gave me more confidence. And then of course, she told everybody and then more people started coming to me. But yes, it was a it was a slow process of like sort of winding down my law practice over like, you know, a year and a half to two year period and then winding up business coaching so that I didn't have to take that massive risk. When I started my law practice years ago, I took that big risk because I didn't have kids yet, you know, and I had that flexibility to do that. Um, but once I had people depending on me and, you know, a lot more bills to pay, I had to do it slowly. So that's kind of how I dealt with the fact that, yeah, I was really afraid to to transition, but doing it slowly made it so that I didn't have to like financially hit rock bottom <laughs> in the process. Yeah, that's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. <laughs> so what are we doing wrong? Why why aren't women making more money? Like what are the fundamentals? And I'm sure you talk about this in your book, but like what the hell? Yeah, for real. I same I yes, what the hell? I mean, that is like I could have that could have been the first line of my book. <laughs> what the hell? Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of things at play here. I think there is we are taught that we should do more with less. Um, we are taught that like money is not something we are good with. Um, I don't think we trust ourselves as a species with money. And we think that we're not, you know, good enough to earn more. I think also so much of this, the ridiculous and, and frankly, stupid personal finance advice is like telling women to stop buying their lattes or like, you know, budget, budget, budget to the nth degree. And I'm like, I've never seen a millionaire like 
you know, who's uh, someone who became a millionaire in less than, you know, 30 years by budgeting their way there. You can become a millionaire by saving. And, you know, on average, it takes you 32 years to save to become a millionaire, right? Versus building, you know, up your career, building up your own business, creating an, a valuable asset that in, increases your net worth, right? So the messages to women are always like, you're a shopaholic, cut coupons, stop buying shoes, stop buying lattes, remove all pleasure from your life, cut every corner, right? That's the financial advice we get. And those are all broke-ass decisions. They keep us broke. Million-dollar decisions are what it, what is advertised and, you know, said to men in media in all forms, right? Movies, you know, like TV, commercials, all of these messages that we're getting are very different than men. And men are told, you know, it's always like a picture of a lion and it's like, yes, go, you know, buy that suit, you know, you know, be, you know, step into your power, uh, take that risk, invest, make those moves, right? So it's like always telling men to step into their power and always telling women to shrink. And shrinking does not make us money. And it also doesn't create the life that we want for ourselves. And so I think we have to acknowledge that story is happening and then start to tell ourselves a new story. Like, fuck that idea that I'm not good with money. I used to think that about myself. I used to stay with an overdrafted bank account. I used to know exactly the speech I was going to give the bank to get my overdraft fees back. <laughs> like, I was a hustler. And I was, I, you know, every time my card was swiped, I was like, oh, is it going to be declined? I mean, I feel like I still had PTSD about that literally up until like a couple of years ago <laughs> where like I still would be worried that my card was going to decline even though I, I knew money was in there. <laughs> you know what's so funny is I share the same thing. I used to have to call the bank like 1-800-995-9535 to <laughs> see if mama had like a hundred bucks in there to basically pay for dinner. And I still, I have the same thing to this day. I'm like, is there money in my account? I don't, you know, like it went on for so long. <laughs> yes. where you're literally, I had teamsters from Con Ed wait outside my apartment and they're like, we're not leaving until you pay us for the electric electricity. And so I, I, I feel you, I feel like that pain doesn't go away for a long time. It doesn't. And I mean, that. so it's media messages and the stories we tell ourselves as a result of those media messages, but it's also institutional, right? Like it's built into our government and our systems and our laws that women are not empowered to have money and to build businesses and to be successful. This is such a new thing. Women couldn't have credit cards in the 70s. You know, this is still new women and money. For a long time, we couldn't own our own property. We had to have a man, a brother, an uncle, our father, our husband on our bank accounts in order to have a bank account. And that was in the 70s, right? So like that's, you know, our mothers, our grandmothers, right? Like that's not so far removed. So it's amazing actually that there are women billionaires today and that we are building million dollar businesses, but a lot more of us need to be doing it. And I think, you know, we just got to share those secrets and we just have to really challenge ourselves to make it happen. Because I think we sort of, as a result of all of these messages and the laws and every, you have to intentionally put effort into making something different happen. If you just sort of follow the wave of like your career and what everybody else is doing and move with the tide of society or whatever, and what people say you should do, it will never happen. You have to step away from the crowd and be like, no, I want something more for myself and intentionally go after it. And also find your people who are also going after it. That's the only way to make that happen. 
Agreed. So where do you think this gusto comes from for you, like this fight? Because I feel like at least what I've been talking about the last several months is the fight and the cavalry's not coming and, you know, you don't get to wait around and then suddenly you're successful. Yes. Well, I think that when, you know, I grew up low income and so, you know, everything was a fight. And I grew up in New York too, where it's like a fight to get on the train. (laughs) It's like a fight in the morning before school starts with like the kids who say they don't like you, right? Like, I feel like the way I grew up in Queens, New York, it was like, life is a fight. My mom, you know, with, like you said, with, with Con Ed, it was like the same thing for us where, you know, my mom would be writing them a fake check at the door just to get them to go away to buy us like two weeks when she would get paid and then could pay the electric bill. And sometimes that hustle didn't work. So like, Watching all of that around me, I was really insistent that I would not have that struggle as an adult because I experienced it every day with my parents and just seeing what they were struggling with financially and, you know, started working when I was 14 and like, you know, paid for everything for myself after 14 other than housing uh, because it was required, you know? And so I think that's where that fight comes from, just kind of watching what happens if you don't fight, right? Like what happens is you if you don't fight... And if you, you know, people always talk about money and greed and like, you know, wanting money is a bad thing. And I'm like, that's what they want you to believe, right? Like that's what the powers that, at, the powers that be, they want you to believe that money is bad so that you don't go after it, so that you don't want it. Money is the root of all evil. We've all heard that phrase and we see it playing out in so many different ways that we're getting those messages. Well, let me tell you something, right? Like, What I think money does is put food on the table, provide education, provide opportunity, provide healthcare, provide security. So I understand how real it is. So it's like, it's a very middle class or wealthy thing to say, right? Like you must be middle class or you must have grown up much better than I did if you think that money is not that important. I'm acutely aware of how important money is to our just daily lives and economic well-being. It's, it's a real and important thing. So all of that, I think, created that fight in me that it is, I insist upon it. And I know I'm going to hustle until it, I make it happen. And I recognize that in you as well. Like you could tell that you have that energy about you too. Like I'm going to fucking make it happen. Watch me, you know? Yep. I think it's the only way to achieve what you want. I mean, I don't, I don't meet anyone who just fell into success. And if it looks effortless, it's because they work really hard to make it look that way. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Uh, There's a a woman that's a, a friend of mine that's worked painstakingly hard to make every aspect of her life really unobtainably beautiful. But she works really hard at making that that look perfect. You know, like she'll fret over a photograph whereas I'll be like, I am, no, I can't look at this photograph anymore. But then you see the difference, right? You see that you're like, oh, that's why she worried about the photograph and the light for five hours when I wanted to. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, try to produce one decent looking photo and you understand, oh, this is all that's required. It's like setting up your ring lights and like, finding the perfect positioning and taking 1200 photos before you find the one that actually looks good enough. I'm like you, I'm like, whatever, this is fine. I don't care. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) And honestly, I think there's something to be said. Definitely. Like I'm always, I do love trying to make things aesthetically beautiful. I think our environments affect how we feel every day. So we can be in a space that feels beautiful or we can wear 
clothing that feels beautiful and that makes us feel good about ourselves. I think all of that affects our ability to make money. And so that really matters. And it's something that I value. I also value showing the real real, which is something that you do too. And something that you're doing in your book as well. Like, I love that too. Show me like the mess in the background, because let me know that if I'm messy too, like, it's supposed to be that way. Because otherwise, we, we're messy and we think like, oh, I must be failing. No, you're just, you're just out here doing it. <laughs> That's what it looks like. It looks like a mess. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I want to like show people the behind the scenes of actually what my, what my, I'm on CNN, but you should, you would cry if you knew what my setup is. It's like, it's kind of like... <laughs> propped up with a computer with like a janky, janky ring light that's like barely working. And anyway, I'm just like, how glamorous is this? <laughs> it is so true. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. And I, I think this is true for companies too. I remember I interned for Hillary Clinton when I was in college. She was a junior senator from New York. This was like her first term um, and her first time being a senator. And so I was an intern and I was like with her legal counsel and like uh, the director of legislation or whatever. And, you know, pretty high level people. And I was just kind of assisting them, filing for them and doing that kind of stuff. And I was shocked at like what a hot mess their office was. I was like, what in the hell? I mean, the files were so disorganized. Everything was everywhere. And they just focused on what do we need to know now? What needs to happen next? And that's it. They couldn't worry about files and all that stuff because it was just such an enormous deluge of work that you just have to stay focused on what's important today. Um, And so I remember that. And I recall that all the time when I feel like my shit is kind of messy, you know, like, if people knew this, this system is not quite as clear and neat as it, as it appears on the front end for them, it, behind the scenes, it's a hot mess for me and my team. Uh, but like, I think that's what it is. And I heard this quote that I love by a friend of mine, Alex Charfin. He said that, you know, if your business is grow, your, your business is broken and if it's growing, it always will be. And I think that is so true. Like when you're building and creating success and creating more wealth, you're going to break the systems you had because it can no longer manage, like hold the success that you now have. So if you're growing and being successful, you will continue to get messy and there will always be something to fix. It's like having an old house. Like it's always like, oh, that faucet's leaky. Oh, I want to change the tile in the bathroom. Oh, we need a paint job. It's like, there's ne- you're never done. There's always something that needs fixing. Totally. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what do you tell women who are afraid to come off as forthright, open? They're worried because we've been educated that talking about money is bad or wanting wanting to have success or even, you know, when women talk about money, it's considered bragging versus, you know, men can talk about it and it's normal. Like, what do you tell these women that you consult and speak to? I tell them to to do it differently, right? Like, I mean, if you don't want to share all your business, don't. But, you know, I ask them to question how is that working for you? And how does that help you reach your goals? And how does that help the women that are coming behind you that are, you know, five steps behind where you're at today? How does that help them? Um, And so I also try to model it, you know, by sharing like, this is how much I'm getting for speaking gigs. This is, you know, the, I, I didn't say the exact amount because I don't think I was allowed to, but I shared that I got a six-figure book deal. And it wasn't so much for bragging just to be like, yo, you could ask for more. And I got a six-figure book deal because I fucking demanded it and was like, I will, will take nothing less. So either you're going to give it to me or I'm not writing this book or I'll publish it my damn self, but <laughs> y'all go pay me something decent, you know? And part of the reason I did that is because I know there's going to be another Black woman that is getting a book deal with the same people involved And when she goes for it, I want there to be precedent where they bet it on a black woman and it was worth the money. You know what I mean? And they got a return on that investment. And so I think, I think when we are demanding more and we are putting better boundaries in place where we are asking for more money, when we are, you know, asking for a pay raise, we are not only doing that for ourselves, we're doing that for all of us, for the whole crew, right? Like, for all of us to see. And also, you know, for, you know, people, when I saw other people having success with their book deals or their companies and seeing what they can accomplish, then I can say, oh, I want to do that, right? Like I was watching some design show. I think it's like the McGee and Company on um, Netflix. They have like a little series. And I was watching like one or the first episode and she was introducing her company and talking about how she had 90 employees. And I was like, wow, at the time I couldn't fathom having 90 employees. And I, I now have 25 employees and 90 still sounds like a lot to me, but I'm like, I'm going to have 90 employees, right? It's like, almost like we need someone to say it. We need somebody to be doing it. So we could be like, I'm going to do that too. So we know that that's even a real thing. And I think that has a lot to do with money. So I think whenever we can, we should share it. And, you know, I know that we are a lot of times signing contracts and stuff where we can't share it on a public stage, but we could definitely share it with a couple girlfriends and say like, I would look for a ballpark of X, <laughs> you know what I mean? And start telling people, and it's even on my team, I assume my team is majority women. I think we have two men and that's it. You know, I expect that the people on my team are probably sharing with each other how much they make and I'm not mad at it, right? And we have a very fair payment process. We make it very clear what's required to get a raise. We give out raises generously. We give out profit sharing. And to me, I'm like, 
I want to make sure that I'm modeling that on both sides. When I'm the one asking for more, and then when somebody's asking me for more and being fair and consistent and how I pay my people is very consistent because I expect that they're going to share it. And I think we need to create a culture where we talk about money. We talk about what we're doing with it because we can talk about sometimes the top line of what we're making, but also what are you doing with it? How is it being spent? Are you investing? What are you doing with extra money? I never had extra money as a child. No one in my family knows what extra having extra money is other than one of my aunts, you know, and she was, she's definitely not going to talk about money because she's of a different, you know, generation. And so I'm like, how do I learn to invest? Like, how do I look? What do you do with excess? I've never had that. <laughs> I don't even know what that means to have excess. So figuring that out, um, we got to share that information. So I, I say, let's do it. And let's, let's tell our business. <laughs> so I have two burning questions based on what you said, I'm assuming a lot of a lot of the tips and advice you give her in the book. So everyone listening, buy her book. We should all be millionaires. So now that you've achieved success, and you know what it's like to live and grow up how you did, do you parent differently? Do you do you just say like my brother and I, for instance, we were both raised very similar to you where we had to work for anything we wanted. There was no extra money. We split a McDonald's small fry anytime we got to go to McDonald's and I could not get a cheeseburger because it was 10 cents more. Like everything was counted. And so my brother on the one hand is like, gives his children anything they want out of that longing desire that he never had. And I'm like, oh no, kids, you're going to work for everything you want because it taught me well. And my kids are like, I don't really want to work that hard for it. So I'll just, uh, I'll just not get it. I'm curious how you approach your, your children. Yes. So for sure, my children, um, are very, they, they, they have a lot. (laughs) They have things that I couldn't fathom when I was a kid. For example, they have horses, um, which is like, I, I mean, I still wake up some days and I'm like, my child's an equestrian with her own horse. What is this life? <laughs> like, how, how the hell was this possible? Um, but I think that's one of the benefits is like making, I, you know, so we have two things. One, they earn things through school. So they are homeschooled because of the pandemic and we kind of like it. So we're going to stick with it for now. Um, and we hired a teacher to teach okay. them. That was my next question. Can we yeah. share? Her? Oh no. Yes. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, but yeah, we, we tried doing it with like a tutor over the internet. And we were like, yeah, this isn't going to work. So in January, we found someone who is a teacher who wanted to get out of the public schools. And so we, we hired her. And that's been amazing. And we have three kids. So it's like one teacher for three. And what we were paying for private school, it actually, I think we saved money. Um, for th- versus three kids in private school and paying for each one. So anyway, so they so they have to earn things through school. So like they do their homework or whatever. They have to. They, it's a behavior thing. It's a, a completing their assignments thing, and they get points, you know, every day through school. And they can save up their points for different kinds of prizes or gifts. Um, so like my daughter wanted a pogo stick and she had to save up 65 points, which took her probably like, I don't know, two months to save up. So it's just like learning that like, yeah, you want it, you got to earn it. And here's what it looks like to earn it. So giving them opportunities to have that experience, even though like there's not as, there's obviously not struggle like there was when I was a kid, but still I want them to understand what it means to earn something, to work for something. Um, and then the other thing is, I think the horses are actually a real blessing because horses require 
an extensive amount of care every day. So you got to pick their hooves every day. They need to be groomed every day. You need to spend time with them every day in addition to getting to ride them. And so they do a lot of that manual labor. And I'm like, this is the best thing we ever did for our kids. Like, because they're like, I don't feel like going out there today. And I'm like, go ahead and, you know, muck that stall and like literally shovel that shit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And that's another way that we're teaching them. Like, if you want to ride these horses, you got to shovel shit, you know, on a regular basis. Um, And so that's another way that we're doing it. And it's still a question that I struggle with sometimes that I feel like those are two big ways. And then also we're pretty disciplinary. And so like, we don't let them get away with BS and we do require them to put some effort into like get things and earn things. But I, I feel like kids these days are different. Like they'll be like, Oh, I can't have it. Cool. I'm good without it. (laughs) And you're like, wow, that's not going to work. Is it? (laughs) No, it's not working for me. And, and I'm, and then people are like, do you raise your kids the same way? I'm like, well, I'm trying, but they're just like, meh, I don't need that. I'll go back outside and play. And you're just like, Oh, so where is that work? Where is that desire to work hard going to come in for my little people? But I'm, I'm, yeah. It's a question I think we all have, like we struggle with because it's like the the desire to work hard was built into our childhoods because of our parents' struggles. But now it's not there and you're like, okay, are these going to be spoiled, horrible people when they grow up? <laughs> How can we avoid that? Exactly. That is my goal. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> um, so I have, I end my podcast with two questions, but I just have one more before because I think it's important to talk about, you know, obviously... Um, we know that women already make proportionately less than you have women of color. The numbers are abysmal. I think it's 50 cents on the dollar versus our 81 as a white person. And then you look at VC funding and like everywhere you look, right? Women of color less. So Mm -hmm. if you had to give a message that would be different to women of color for how to do this, how to think differently, what would that be? Because I'm sure, you know, the work is that much harder. There's less seats at the table. What do you, what do you advise? Yes, I agree. Um, And I think the numbers are extremely discouraging. And I have a, there's an episode of my podcast called You Don't Need a White Man to Get Ahead. And I I recorded that. And there's a section of my book that talks about this as well. And I recorded that episode because I used to go to all of these like white guy conferences and like, you know, it was like nothing but like guys who run large tech startups. And some of them were very generous, honestly. Some of them did open doors for me, but most of them didn't. And most of it was like, I'm on the outside. I'm the only black woman in this room. I'm one of eight women here and like the only black person (laughs) out of like 200 attendees, you know? Um, And I would do that so that I could get the information and bring it back to other people. And like, that was my strategy. And my thinking was like, well, I have to go where these white guys are because they're talking about the kind of success that I want to have. And then I got my ass kicked by one of these masterminds where they kind of like, I got a little too successful for them and they slammed the door to like the behind the scenes kind of stuff um, in my face. And these were people I used to vacation with. Like I thought they were my real friends and they absolutely were not. And so I think the learning experience from that was like, oh, I was thinking that I had to find white guy friends to be my allies, to open doors for me. 
because that's what I was taught when I was in college. Like literally there was a class on women, women in leadership. And literally that was what was taught to us, um, that we have to find a white male ally, you know? And I think that is like sort of the old school thinking. And so what I realized from that is actually find other black women, find other women who are down for the cause. Like we need to network with each other and rely on each other. And there's actually stats and studies, which I quote in my book about how women who have strong, you know, female alliances and strong, a strong uh, network of other ambitious women, they actually see far more success and have much more money than women who have a male, mostly male network as w- around their career. And so we actually need to forget about that advice that we've been given, if you were given the same advice in college or wherever, and really focus on each other. Because people like you, Rebecca, and myself and others, like there's so many of us opening doors for each other. There's so many of us building amazing companies, ready to do brand deals or make alliances or send referrals. And so I think we really have to focus on creating a really strong, you know, um, you know, squad of women and women of color and people like us, because there are folks out here who have already made it who are, or who have the right connection that you need and who will open that door for you a lot faster because that's what the studies show. White men in those positions of power open doors for other white men 99.9% of the time. And there's like a little teeny 0.01% slice that can go to a woman or a person of color. And so we got to rely on each other and really look to each other to create those powerful networks. I love that. I love that we don't have to rely on the white men. Mm -hmm. That could be another book. Don't rely on the white men. (laughs) Yes, totally. <laughs> it writes itself. It really does. There's your New York Times bestseller. There you go. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. Um, all right. You know, normally I ask two questions of all my guests. I ask them, what is one thing we'd be surprised to know about you? And also some advice you'd like to pass on. But instead of the advice piece, because it's all in your book and everyone listening is going to buy it. I'd love to hear about a moment where you were scared, fearful, and then you're like, fuck it, I'm going to be fearless. Yes. Okay. So one thing that would surprise people is, um, I think this is surprising. I've gotten a surprising response when I've talked about this. I used to fight when I was a little girl. I I grew up in New York and, you know, people would try to bully me or try to tell me like they didn't like me. They were going to fight me after school or whatever. And I used to be so afraid, but I would show up and act real tough and be like, let's go. And I had quite a few fistfights growing up and even like, you know, (laughs) late into my teenage years. Um, Because sometimes people choose violence. And I chose violence back and defended myself. So yeah, so that's something that I think is surprising about me. Maybe that's where the fight comes from, Rebecca, is me having fistfights in in grade school and middle school and high school. (laughs) I love it. So that's the surprising thing. And then the other question was just about a really challenging moment. A challenging moment where you were fearful and you're like, I don't know if I can pull this out. Should I do it? Should I take this step? And yes. then you did it. Even, you know, not, the fear didn't go away. You just said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give into it. Okay. So I think for me, that was March of 2020 when this pandemic hit. And, you know, so many of my clients 
their households or their businesses were hit really hard and like instantly their income was gone because outside was closed, you know? And as a result, I had a large amount of clients like say, I'm not going to be able to make the payment this month. And like, I think I'm going to have to drop out. And so that was our first month in years that we were not profitable. We are profitable every single month and had been for years. Now, it wasn't always a massive profit, but there was always profit. And March 2020 was the first month in years that I was not profitable. And I was like literally in the bathtub crying. (laughs) I like got in the tub to try to make myself feel better. And I was like, just sat there and sobbed and tried to figure out what am I going to do? Like I have this team, I have this brand, I have a little bit, I have money. So I have like some runway, uh, but I have like very little clients right now and no one willing to buy my offer right now. What do I do? Um, And so I just had to come up with something else and do a pivot. And so I, at the time I was running a mastermind and it was like a high-end service that cost thousands of dollars per month. And I had like a small group of like, you know, 50 clients. And that was like my whole business was those 50 clients. And then when half of them left (laughs) in a week, and then the rest were like, I don't know if the payment's going to go through. You're like, okay, we need a different plan. And so I had to think about it differently and, you know, brainstorm with my team and try to come up with a solution. But I was like literally devastated in the moment because I was so afraid. And we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if the world would continue or just be like completely stop. Um, and so we came up with a membership um, offer and maybe seems obvious now at the time, it was not at all obvious. And it was also like we were set up to like closely hold in a high touch experience 50 clients. And instead, we instantly had a thousand clients, right? In order to make the same money, we needed like a lot more clients. Um, and so we just came up with this idea. I talked to my customers to get feedback and get ideas. And then we launched it and we were like, fuck, I hope this works. Um, and it did. You know, we got 300 people in the first month. And then the following month, we got like 900 people. And it it was just like off to the races and we've had exponential growth ever since. So it was like the best thing that ever happened to my business. We would not be growing the way that we are right now if we still had the mastermind. So yeah, it was a scary moment, but we pushed through and came up with a solution. And like, it was like our Hail Mary. And the thing is, the funny thing is, is I'm somebody who had poo-pooed membership communities forever. Like for three years, I was like, membership communities are terrible. Like that's a bad business model. You don't want to do that. People do it for the wrong reasons, blah, blah, blah. Like I hated on memberships. And then I was like, wait, now I'm a hypocrite because I'm going to launch a membership. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have done it otherwise because I would have never considered it. But I had to consider all the options because I was like, I'm, you know, 30 days away from having to lay people off. So I got to come up with a plan. And yeah, we did. And now it's been amazing on the other side of that. So I think it's true that like being fearless on the other side of that is everything that you want. Totally. And I think that, you know, not only the, the things that we have to apply because of the pandemic are still the things that went now that it's over, quote unquote, will still, you know, we can't get comfortable again. I think on this yes. to entrepreneurs is what you did is doing that is disrupting yourself you know, monthly, daily, weekly. Yes. Continuing that mindset. Absolutely. Right. Like my friend says, it took a pandemic for me to X, Y, Z. And I'm like, yes. And how can we force ourselves to get out there and take risks 
and, you know, invest in ourselves in big ways and face our fears on a regular basis so that we can see, because that's where the returns are. The returns are not in safety and comfort, unfortunately, (laughs) as much as we would like them to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're incredible. Please share where everyone can follow you, sign up for your everything and all the handles. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. You're incredible. Um, you can find us at hello7.co is where where we live on the internet. Uh, my Instagram handle is esq Rogers with a D. Um, and if you want to follow the Rogers Ranch and see our horses and our shenanigans, <laughs> figuring out how to be ranchers um, is at the Rogers Ranch. Um, that's the other place to find me. And we have a podcast called the Hello 7 Podcast. So check us out there and you will be on the podcast so people can check out your episode. Yay. Awesome. Yay. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birch Boxes, as well as our site.